0: Mr. President, you have stated as your goal that America should remain the world's strongest force for peace, liberty, prosperity and security so that we can build a future for the next generation.
1: All nations in the democratic community have a responsibility to make it clear through our actions and our words that efforts to overturn constitutional regimes or steal elections are unacceptable. To those who care deeply about America's engagement and indispensable leadership in the world, you will find no stronger advocate for that cause than Samantha.
0: As the most powerful and inspiring country on this earth, we have a critical role to play in insisting that the institution meet the necessities of our time. It can do so only with American leadership. Hello, and welcome back to
1: Barely Getting By the Long 1990s. I'm Chloe Ward. And I'm Emma Shortis. So first up, Emma and I both have to apologise for this recording. We are recording on a Sunday afternoon, which means that we both have houses that are filled with children and dogs. So if there is any incidental noise in the background, hopefully it's a one-off. Today, we're going to be talking again about America. In our second episode of this series of Barely Getting By, we spoke about the Clinton administration, but we didn't speak very much about its foreign policy. I think some of the Clinton administration's greatest achievements but also some of its greatest failures were in
0: foreign policy. Is that right, Emma? Yeah, I think that's right. I think um, some of Clinton's most important actions happened in the world outside of the United States. I think we can't really talk about the world of the 1990s without talking about what the United States did and also importantly what it didn't do in the world.
1: And... If we go back to our first episode where we spoke about Francis Fukuyama and his ideas about the end of history, you can see that he, he left foreign policy a little bit vague, but absolutely he, saw, he, he foresaw that the 1990s would be an era
0: of peace and prosperity. Is that right again? <laughs> Well, I think it is. You know, I think it's safe to assume when somebody's declaring the end of history, that means that they're declaring the end of war. You know, Fukuyama declared the end of grand ideological conflicts. And from that, I think we can kind of assume that there's no great big ideological wars. But I think, you know, like many things, um, like with many things, Fukuyama was pretty wrong about that. The 1990s wasn't the decade of peace and stability and prosperity that many people had had dreamed about. And if we go
1: to that crucial year 1989 which in many ways kind of inaugurated the 1990s that was a year in which the USA was engaged in warfare right?
0: It was so so I think most people when they think about warfare and the US in the early 1990s they'll go straight to the Gulf War but in fact the Bush administration was waging a war even before then, so before the Cold War is basically even officially declared over with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Bush administration invaded Panama.
1: All nations in the democratic community have a responsibility to make it clear through our actions and our words that efforts to overturn constitutional regimes or steal elections are unacceptable.
0: So. Bush went after, well, the Bush administration went after the dictator there, Manuel Noriega, who was a pretty horrible guy um, and also a drug trafficker. So there was an arrest warrant out for him. And Bush sent in the military to execute that arrest warrant. It was the largest American military operation since the Vietnam War. It was called Operation Just
1: Cause. Panamanian people want democracy, peace, and the chance for a better life in dignity and freedom. The people of the United States seek only to support them in pursuit of these noble goals.
0: And it was relatively, you know, I guess when we're speaking about wars, it was relatively quick and successful. It was all over in less than two months.
1: Okay, but, I mean, to take that point, it's not like the US doesn't have a long history of interfering in, in other countries' politics, particularly in the 1980s in the politics of Central American and South American states. Why why would you count this
0: among, say, the wars of the 90s rather than in that longer history? So Panama is, is absolutely part of that longer history that you spoke about, Chloe, of the United States deep involvement and intervention in in Latin America, which is ongoing. But Panama in 1989 is also really important because many historians now regard it as a, a kind of test run for the Bush administration's invasion of Iraq in 1991, the Gulf War. And that's because the Operation Just Cause in Panama kind of puts in place a foreign policy in the US in which regime change is an acceptable, even a desirable aim for intervention. Panama suggests that basically America can go to war to promote democracy and human rights and really significantly that it can do that unilaterally. Okay, so is this bringing us into the territory of what I've heard described as humanitarian war? It absolutely is, Chloe, and I think that's why understanding the United States' role in the world in the 1990s is really important because the 90s does see the advent of... humanitarian war which is a weird kind of I don't know if you'd call it an an oxymoron but basically what it means is that a war is fought for no strategic reason the war is fought in a kind of Alanis Morissette construction of irony in order to save lives I mean I'm, I'm skipping
1: ahead but I think I'm probably not alone in finding it quite frustrating that this seems to be a pattern in american history of america thinking that it can intervene and successfully intervene for you know for the sake of other nations and it's something that certainly didn't didn't end in the 1990s why why does this keep happening why do u.s administrations keep going out into the world and waging these wars that you know as the 90s would demonstrate are very unsuccessful yeah
0: that is uh, that is the question that that keeps me up at night <laughs> um look i think there's not really a, a satisfying answer to that question though that hasn't stopped um many historians and me from trying to answer it. But I think there's, there are a couple of things. I think it is partly President Eisenhower's military industrial complex, which basically argues or asks the question, you know, what is the point of all this military buildup, especially during the Cold War? What is the point of all this material if you're not going to use it? So that basically suggests that the kind of interwoven nature of American capitalism and the American military means that the momentum is always towards war but I think that doesn't quite explain it because that doesn't explain public buy-in and I think that's where the 1990s can help us to understand and particularly old mate Fukuyama can help us to understand because for Fukuyama the US as we know kind of emerges out of the Cold War with a sense of, of both relief but also triumph and it's that triumphalism, I think, that helps to explain what's going on here, because that's rooted in American exceptionalism. So what is American exceptionalism? So we could, of course, devote a, a number of two hour long lectures to this question. But I think it is is—it is the notion, of course, that the United States is an except, exceptional country. It's unique in the world. For me, it's kind of embodied in a, in a Ronald Reagan quote, where he says that, I always felt that from our deeds, it must be clear to anyone that Americans were a moral people who were only a force for good in the world. So in that interpretation, in its best interpretation, it's about helping people less fortunate, about helping those people who are unlucky enough not to have been born in the United States. It's about protecting the vulnerable. But I think in the worst interpretation, in the worst sense, American exceptionalism is something like president trump claiming that the united states has the best response to coronavirus in the entire world that you know the german chancellor is ringing him to congratulate him on the excellent response you know and it's important to to note i think that this isn't just trump lying although of course it is that too it's also rooted in uh, the worst kind of iteration of american exceptionalism which is a fundamental inability to even consider that it might not be true that America is the best country in the world. It's a it's a failure that, in this case, is quite literally deadly and has been deadly many times throughout history.
1: Yeah, and it's the the arrogance, the political arrogance that accompanies that sort of yeah that that that, accompan- that accompanies that American exceptionalism in thinking that American democracy is something that can and let it be said should be spread to other parts of the world. How does I'm I'm interested in how it falls on partisan lines because you've spoken about Trump and Fukuyama, who are both self-identified conservatives, but in the 1990s, America was led by Democrats in Bill, in the Bill Clinton
0: administration, right? That's right, and and that's I think one of the really one of the many interesting things about American exceptionalism, which is that it is. Bipartisan. It's not just conservatives like Ronald Reagan or Fukuyama or whoever. It's also Bill Clinton. It's also Barack Obama. Now, it it manifests differently, but its roots are the same, I think. And, And in the 1990s, in the decade that we're talking about, it's the kind of liberal version of American exceptionalism that turns into a liberal interventionism that becomes, I think, one of the guiding tenets of American foreign policy. Okay.
1: So can you give me some kind of concrete examples of how this manifests? Like who, who were these people? What did they believe? Would you believe I can Chloe? (laughs)
0: So, so for me, actually in the, in the 1990s, this, this kind of liberal American exceptionalism, um, and liberal interventionism is embodied in somebody called Samantha Power. So listeners might that, that name might kind of ring a few bells. Samantha Power was the US ambassador to the United Nations under Barack Obama, and she was really important. She moved through all kinds of areas of his foreign policy. They had met when Obama was still a senator, and he had read her book. And it, and it was that book, a 2002, in the end, Pulitzer Prize-winning book that she called A Problem from Hell, America in the Age of Genocide, that kind of catapulted power to fame in the United States, fame and influence. Okay, what did, she, what did she argue in that book? So, so the book is, is basically a kind of history of American failures. So she argued in that book that the United States had never once intervened to prevent a genocide. So it's, it's, each chapter kind of addresses a genocide in history from Armenia all the way through to Rwanda and Yugoslavia, and it's a searing criticism of basically American failures to intervene and prevent these genocides from happening. Okay,
1: so, so she's arguing effectively that America, America has failed to intervene enough, why does this gain traction? under the Obama, in, in, in the Obama years?
0: Well, it, I mean, it gains traction even before she makes it into the Obama years because it taps into what we were just talking about, this idea of a, American exceptionalism that the United States is a unique nation that was born in part to play this role, to be a city upon a hill, I suppose. But in this interpretation, it's that the United States, because it has the capability and the kind of moral drive it has the responsibility to intervene and prevent egregious breaches of human rights. And if it has to do that unilaterally, that's fine.
1: Okay, so why I mean, I assume that Samantha Power, that her sort of her sort of tenure ended with the end of the Obama presidency. Why does she come to mind now? Why why do you think of her when you think about this liberal exceptionalism?
0: Well, I think because she, Samantha Power, is part of our broader assessment, our kind of collective re-evaluation of the 1990s. You can just hear my four-year-old screaming in the background there, sorry. Um, she, she's part of our re-evaluation of, of 90s liberalism in particular. So in the 1990s, you know, there, there are, of course, critics of her, but they're, they're not heard very widely. She's kind of, I guess, seen as idealistic, but naive. They're sort of... the the personification of America's flawed execution but intentional you know fundamentally good intentions. I think today we're doing a kind of reassessment where we're recognizing how those kind of arguments, you know, as well-intentioned as they might have been, kind of paved the way for neoconservatives to take over and win those arguments about foreign policy so a lot of critics of power suggest that her arguments about america having a responsibility to intervene unilaterally those arguments are used against the center-left and against progressive by neoconservatives who are going after saddam hussein in iraq in
1: 2003 okay so Emma's kind of given us a bit of a frame for how we might understand American foreign policy under the Clinton administration in the 1990s. What we're going to do in the next two installments is look at those wars that Powell was writing about in the book that made her famous. So we are going to look at events in Rwanda and we're going to look at events in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s. We hope you'll join us for that.
0: Fairly Getting By is supported and produced by RMIT University. Original theme music is by Stuart Cullen.